Hey, if this is your first time joining us, I'm so glad that you are here. We are in a sermon series, and we are uh, exploring the, the, really the purpose of the local church. So if this is your first time visiting, or you're tuning in online, and this is the first time you're tuning in, we are so glad that you came to worship with us today, because I got some good news to share. The first thing of good news is that the Braves won. And so I told, I told Don Bunch that I'm trying my best to grow out a playoff beard. Because in hockey culture, as a, as, as a hockey player, you grow out a playoff beard until your team loses. And so I'm trying to, to put as much positivity into an Atlanta sports team so that, you know, maybe this is the year. Maybe, maybe. But we got some better news to talk about than that. Right? We are here to, to worship a God that loves us in such a way that we can actually be redeemed and have a close communion with him. So we've been going through this sermon series, and, and we're looking at today an alternative identity. And so as we begin, I have a confession to make. See, I am a Texan. Amen. But, uh, there we go. But I was not born in Texas. See, I was born in Harrisonburg, Virginia. But I would never claim to be a Virginian. We got any Virginians in the house? No? Okay, so this is a... Okay, we got one. Well, this is a West Virginian, right? No, real Virginian. I'm sorry, Bob. So, so I, I'm, I say that I'm a Texan. And I, I make these bold claims, like Texas is the greatest country in the world. We're undefeated in war. 1-0, never been beaten. Champions. We went out, we rode out when it was good. Right? And, and I, I claim to be a Texan because, you know, when you're, when you're from Texas, right, you tend to have this concept where you meet other Texans and it's just like it doesn't even matter if you, you might not even be on a first name basis, but you know that if push came to shove, they have access to everything that you own because they're a Texan and you're a Texan and that's just the Texas bond. But I wasn't born in Texas. And yet, I have tried to construct my identity around being a Texan. In fact, I remember when I got peer pressured by one of my very good friends that in order to be a true Texan, you had to have cowboy boots. And so I said, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to ever buy some cowboy boots. But to this day, I have a pair of cowboy boots that are gathering cobwebs in my grandmother's closet. They're not even in my house because I just don't like cowboy boots that much. I think they're, I'd rather go with some, some Australian work boots called Blundstones. They're easier. You slip them on, you slip them off, they're waterproof, but they don't go all the way up to your knee, right? It's a little bit smoother. But I remember being peer pressured because I wanted my identity to be a Texan, and so I bent the knee and bought some cowboy boots, and as I've been preparing for to, uh, this message to talk about an alternative identity, I had to do some, um, some journeying back into my life experience, into my story, because not many people know the, the trauma that I had to go through when my hockey career faded. See, when you grow up only wanting to be a hockey player, in fact, for your, for your 11th birthday and your mom asks you, what do you want for your birthday? You know, do you want a bike? Do you want a trip to, you know, some, some amusement park, Six Flags over Texas? Or, you know, what do you want for your, birthday par for your birthday, right? And I said, I just want a Steve Eiserman hockey stick, which is, you know, an Easton old hockey stick with a Steve Eiserman blade, 
which means that the way that the blade is curved is in accordance with the professional hockey player Steve Eiserman. He's my favorite player. That's all I wanted. I didn't want anything else. That's all I wanted for my birthday. I sold my Xbox. I sold my television. I, I got rid of pretty much everything, and I bought this, this uh, the kind of the plastic that you put down on carpet for your uh, office chair to be able to roll a little bit smoother. I bought one of those, and I put it on my backyard, and I shot pucks every day after school into a net that I bought. And I, I shot so many pucks that I gave my mom for Christmas a new sliding glass door because I wanted to, you know, repay the favor. Hockey stick, you know, new glass door. But this was many years in the, in the future, and, and I actually remember the moment where I thought, I was with a friend, and I thought, I'm going to scare my sister. And so I'm going to intentionally hit the sliding glass door, because I had done that in the past, but my shot was not very good. It was really bad. But I had been shooting a lot of pucks lately, and I ripped it. And the minute that it left, I was like, this is not good. So I gifted my mom a new sliding glass door. But not many people know the reason why I didn't make the teams that I tried out for. See, at, when I finished my senior year, I had a really big year. I was one of the top kids in the U.S. In fact, the first tournament of the year, 50, 50 teams, over 1,000 kids, because there's 20 kids on each team. We played two games less than the team that won the championship, and I was still second in points out of 1,000 kids. And so I thought, man, I'm on this... I'm making the mountaintop. I'm going to be the kid from Texas that's five foot eight that becomes a professional hockey player because I don't know what it means to not be optimistic. And I started to craft my identity around being a hockey player so that when I got cut from hockey and I swallowed a lot of pride and I moved in with my dad, who happened to be living in Australia, I didn't realize how much my identity to wanting to be a hockey player had been controlling me. See, I'd put myself in sketchy situations where my meal plans were very sporadic. I didn't have set, uh, a set meal regiment, but I wanted to be a pro hockey player, so I wouldn't cave, I wouldn't overeat. Because sometimes I'd eat 30 minutes before the game because I was constantly just doing everything that I could. And so I just, to this day, I will not overeat. It's just a habit. I know exactly when I've had enough, and I will not go back for seconds. The food could be delicious, but I just won't. Because sometimes I'd eat, and I'd have to go and play, and I have to be able to produce. And I didn't realize that my nerves were so shot from the trauma of trying to place my identity in something that I was trying to achieve until I came down one day from, from working in Australia, and I'm looking in the pantry, and there's, there's so much food, but there's one last Pop-Tart. And I asked my dad, hey, dad, would it be okay if I had this Pop-Tart? And my dad said, yeah, of course. That's why we, nobody else in this house eats Pop-Tarts. This, this is for you. And I broke down. Because to me, I had been sacrificing so much to be a hockey player that I had been basically killing myself. And there's this modern identity narrative where we want to, we want to build this, this identity around something today, whether that's our job or our, even our church family, right? Or uh, it could be our relationship, who we're in a relationship with. It could be the stuff that we own, the vacations that we take but we try to achieve a certain identity based off of those things 
and we become exhausted. Have you guys noticed that you can't even have a disagreement with anyone anymore? Like, if you start to disagree, it's like, no, we can no longer have any, we can't be cordial, we can't have any type of relationship, because you're disagreeing with me. Notice that language. You're not disagreeing with that train of thought, you're disagreeing with me. Because we're placing our identity in so many things. There's a modern identity narrative. There's a reason why our nerves are completely shot. Why we're, we're, it's almost like walking around on eggshells. Right? Where you don't want to trigger someone because you want to have a relationship. And as a Christian, you do. You want to have that relationship. You want to build bridges, not build walls. But our identity, if we choose to buy into the way that, that modern culture says we build our identity, we will find out that what many scholars are, are saying is that we'll be exhausted, we'll be fragile, and we will actually realize at one point that we are killing ourselves if we come to some form of, of light. Listen, listen to this. This is Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City. He says this, Sin is building your identity, finding your greatest meaning, significance, and security on something besides God. Everyone centers his or her, her life on something, and whatever that is becomes, by definition and function, A, your God, something you adore and serve with your whole heart, and B, your Savior something you have to have in order to feel spiritually and emotionally significant and meaningful. So even the seemingly most non-religious people are living lives of worship, working for their salvation, though not expressing it so to themselves. Your, your identity, whatever you place your identity in, will become your God. And the ramifications of that will exhaust you. So... How do we as Christians who have been redeemed by a Savior have an alternative community? If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Last Sabbath, we talked about uh, a story in the Bible that Jesus tells that's known as perhaps the, the most well-known Bible story. It's the, the parable of a good Samaritan. And today we have to follow it up with Jesus' uh, second most notorious parable. Luke chapter 15. Say amen when you get there, or just put your hand up if you don't want to say anything, but, but I want to make sure that we all see this together, because in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is going to show us where our identity lies. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, to hear him, him being Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying... And then Jesus litters or, or kind of goes off on uh, several parables. He tells the parable of a lost sheep, where a shepherd leaves 99 sheep, which is that's definitely shepherd malpractice, right? You leave 99 sheep, and then you go after one. I mean, you just, yeah, just forget about them. They're okay, right? Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll leave the door latched. You know, we'll leave the gate latched, right? But we got to get the one. And then he tells a story about a, a lady who, she might have several coins, and she loses one coin, and she does a full-on house renovation to find this one coin. And then she finds it, and she brings everyone through the neighborhood together to have a party. But then he gets into a third Story, But the reason why he's telling these stories is because he's doing something that is just absolutely, it's like almost, it's so radical that it would gather, it would, it, it would get so many headlines today. I mean, Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. 
He's receiving sinners and tax collectors, the scum of society. He's eating with them. Now, to eat with someone, we know, is to be vulnerable. I have a dog. His name is Esau. He's 106 pounds. He's a Rhodesian Ridgeback. He's bred specifically to hunt lions. That's his, that's his dog breed. He hunts in a pack. He's a pack animal. And they're, they're bred to where they hunt in like maybe six or more with hunters on horseback. This was way back in the day. We don't, they don't hunt lions anymore. But they were to go out and they could travel with a hunter on horseback for up to 20 miles. So they have these huge thick pads on their feet. You can't, you can't tax their feet. Right? They're, they're ingrained to operate independently, so they're not constantly looking at you because they're going to have to corral a lion while you're also, as the hunter, corralling a lion. And so they're not going to be looking at, is this okay, boss? Is it, can I do this back up here? Okay, okay. They're not doing that, right? Like, they're full-on thinking independently. But if I drop my dog off at somebody's house, a house a dog sitter... I have to preface the visit with, don't worry if he doesn't eat for a couple of days. This is a dog that is bred to hunt lions. And if he shows up at somebody's house, that he might even know you, but he's not going to eat for a couple of days. Because he knows, and we know, that eating with others is vulnerable. What happens if you get something stuck in your teeth? <laughs> What if you're on a date and you get something stuck in your teeth and you're just, they don't tell you? I mean, and then you realize that you carried on the whole con- I mean, it's vulnerable. And so Jesus is, what is he doing? He's receiving sinners and tax collectors because he's eating with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes, two, two very religious groups, are judging him for it. And so he goes on into this third story in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. How many sons? And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now, if you're a scribe or you're a Pharisee, you're hearing the story and you're like, Yes, come on, Jesus, lay it down on the sinners and the tax collectors. Like, just, just tell them the truth. Because they're operating with this disposition of, of judgment based off of religious superiority. Because they built their identity in their religious superiority. And they're familiar with this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who when they have chastened him will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, and he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and Fear. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they're thinking, this is where Jesus is going with this story. Here is a son. Here's a man. He has two sons. And the youngest of the sons comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance. Now, the New King James says livelihood. I want my livelihood is what the son is asking for. And the reason why it's saying this is because the way that a father would have gotten his land is it would have been passed down by his father. And would have been passed down by his father. 
and then passed down by that father, and then that father's father. And it would have gone all the way back to the book in our Bibles called Joshua, when God divided the land through his leader Joshua. That's how the land would have been passed down. And so it's not, your, your estate is your livelihood. And so when the son comes to his father and says, hey, I'd like my inheritance, he's saying, I don't want to wait for you to die so I can get my inheritance. I want my livelihood now. I want your livelihood now. I want my own freedom. I want to be able to go out and do whatever I want. And so we see in Luke 15 that he goes out and he wastes this, this inheritance with prodigal living or reckless living or licentiousness. Verse 14, Luke chapter 15, verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So, he, so here's the son. He goes up to his father, and he says, hey, I want my inheritance. And the father, being, being the father, says, okay, divides up the inheritance, gives it to, to the other son and the younger son. And then the younger son, I mean, it's, it's like the next day. He takes the bag, and he leaves. And he goes to a foreign country. He wants to get as far away from his household as possible. So he goes to a foreign country, and he, he spends all of it in this thing called prodigal living or, or reckless living. We don't know what that is, right? We could, but we could craft what reckless living looks like with our imagination. But he spends all of this inheritance. And then he doesn't go back home, right? Because he's operating. The son would have been operating with, if I go back home, I was rebellious. I'll be stoned. And so instead, he, he gives himself over to serving under somebody else as a servant. So now he's gone to another country and he's given himself a new master because he's fallen on hard times. And he, he's feeding pigs. Now, in Jewish culture, pigs are deemed unclean. I mean, that's the Old Testament deems pigs as unclean. And so he's, he's as far, he's hit rock bottom. And so when you hit rock bottom, when you know that you've messed up, and he, you ever have that time when your, uh, your parent tells you that if you do something, it's going to happen, and you're like, no, 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 I know way better than, than them. You know, where did they get this wisdom from? And so you embark on doing it anyways, and then you mess up, and you realize that what they said was true, and then you start to think, okay, how do I ask for forgiveness, but, but I got to come up with a, with, a, with a talk in my head. Like, I got to come up with a script. I can't just say I'm sorry, because that's just not going to cut it. Like, I got I to somehow work my way back in with my words. Right? So the son starts to craft a dialogue in his head because he's going to go back. But for, uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 17. But when he came to himself, so he's thinking now, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and yet I'm going to perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You know, the fascinating thing about this is Jesus is telling this story in answer to the Pharisees and the scribes being just, just amazed that Jesus would eat and receive sinners and tax collectors. He's just, they're just amazed. Like, how, how could this, this man, Jesus, do this? And so... He's telling them this story, and, and surely they're thinking, yeah, 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 this son's going to come back, and he's going to get stoned. 
We thought Jesus was going to go there initially, but no, he just wanted to add a little bit more, you know, to be somewhat graceful. But now the son's going to come back, and, and the, the law says that he'll be stoned. And so justice will be done. Justice, right? But the son, he's thinking, okay, well, maybe I could come back, but what relationship would he come back to? It's not one of a son, it's one of a servant, is what he's thinking. And so he goes. Verse 20. And he arose and came back to his father. But when he was still a great way off, all the city elders came and, and grabbed him and held him down and stoned him. Is that what your Bible says? It's not what mine says. See, we tend to read this story, if, if we're familiar with the story at all, we tend to read this story through the eyes of the son. When really this story is all about the father. See, the father sees his son... And it says, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And then the son starts to, to, starts to give out that dialogue, right? That script that he's created. Oh, father, I have sinned. But before he can even finish his first sentence, verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. See, we tend to read this story through the lens of the son, where, where we're the son, we went and spent our father's inheritance, our father's life that he gave us, we went and spent it on reckless living, and now we think that we can come back, but it's at a different relationship. We have to earn our way back into the household. At what point did, did the son stop being a son? When he was prodigal living, off spending his inheritance and get, being a drunkard and a glutton, was he still a son? He was still a son. When he was doing all, for, all forms of, of may, who knows what, right? He was still a son. So why would he somehow in his psychology start to think of himself as less than a son when even when he was prodigal living, his father deemed him still a son? In fact, the father was waiting to catch him before any of maybe the elders who may have heard that he had left because he wanted to welcome him back. He wanted to redeem him. The son had forgotten that his identity was in being the son, not in what he did. And in Christianity, there's this concept found in the New Testament. It's really a, a, a motif, and it's, it's two words. It's, it's in Christ. This is the concept. It's in Christ. It's mentioned all throughout the New Testament, predominantly in the writings of Paul. So if you, if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at why this son was able to go back. Because technically, under the Deuteronomical law, he was to be stoned. But he wasn't. He was welcomed back. In fact, he was given a new robe. He was given a ring. He had sandals put on his feet. And then a party was thrown for him. So why was that able to take place? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 is going to, to show us. See, Ephesians chapter 1, picking up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's that phrase, in Christ. In Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. No, it, notice the, the interesting thing there. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before he even created the earth, God had in his mind to choose us to be his children. So even before we went and lived recklessly or even we went and sinned, God still chose us to be in Christ. Ooh, man, all right, all right. So even before we went and sinned, even before we went and we, we, we fell short of the glory that God had for us, when we stumbled into that besetting sin, we stumbled into that addiction that we said, no, we're not going to get into that again because I, I put a new Bible verse as my promise on my screen, right? And so every time we look at our screen, it's that Bible pro promise, and I recite it. Even before we were falling into that various form of sinning, he chose us to be in Christ for redemption. Notice, this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So in him giving Christ, in Jesus coming to the earth, we have been blessed with everything that heaven can give. Just as, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So, he, not only did he choose us to be in Christ by the, in the foundation of the world, but that we could stand before God holy and blameless in love. Now, if I were to ask you guys this question, do you feel like you're living holy lives? We might think of, well, you know, yesterday it was Friday, and, and I, I almost made it the whole week, but then I stumbled. And so you might come here thinking, I'm not holy enough. Right? Or, or you might have, you might, it might have been Wednesday, and you might think, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not holy enough. I have to somehow earn that holiness back by showing up to church, or by reading my Bible more consistently, or spending more time in prayer, or paying tithe, or helping my neighbor. No, 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 no. Paul is saying in Ephesians, no, God chose us to be in Christ, so that when he gave Christ, Christ was standing in our place, taking our sin, taking our guilt, taking our shame, and bearing it on the cross, but he, de he declared that and chose that before the world was even made. Which means that God actually wants people to be in heaven. He's not looking for a reason to exclude you from being in heaven, because before he even created the world, he chose us to be in Christ. This is what John, the disciple, is talking about when he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and he himself is this, and here's the word, propitiation, which is like an atonement, sacrifice for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the whole world. See, Christ took all of the sins because God had chosen us to be in Christ from the foundation of the world to be able to stand before God holy and blameless in love. But then if we go back to Ephesians, in verse 7. Ooh, here we go, in verse 7. In him, so because of Christ, we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. You ever wonder what God's will is for your life? It's for you to be found in Christ. 
That's what Paul is, is, is saying right here. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are, in, are, which are on earth in him. And then it says this. Notice the son, the son, the second son, went to his father and said, I want my inheritance. Check this out. Verse 11, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So because of Christ, we've been given access to all heaven has to offer. Which means that when we go to God... We don't, have to, we don't have to have that dialogue of, oh my goodness, uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be able to stand before him holy and blameless. Now you might be thinking, but what about sin? What, what does that relationship with sin look like, right? Because if we fall into sin and sin is, is the transgression of God's law or it's lawlessness and sin is what condemns us, then, then are you saying, pastor, that even before sin came into the world, God still had chosen us to be in Christ so that we could have redemption, but before sin even came into the there, there's a lot of questions that all of a sudden start to fill our minds, right? And those questions might prevent us from being able to see the clarity in which uh, Paul is presenting the gospel. He's saying just simply this, simply this. God had a plan for salvation before he created the world. And by having a plan for salvation before he created the world, there was a plan for redemption for when you stumbled into sin, which means that you don't have to have a negative image of God when you have realize that you've fallen into sin, you can run straight to him. Why? Because he never stopped seeing you as a child of God. When you were off prodigal living, he, his perception of you did not change. Your perception of him changed. And so Jesus in Luke 15 is, is giving an example of where our identity lies. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, if a man has committed a sin, notice the rebellious son, he goes out. And he deserves to be stoned. It says, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death, you shall hang him on a tree. So how come the son is able to come back when if a son, a rebellious son, commits a sin deserving of death, you're to kill him. And if he, if he commits a sin deserving of death, you're to hang him on a tree. Well, it's because God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that Paul can say in Galatians, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law or sin, having become a curse for us. And then it says this, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So why, why is Jesus able to tell a story where a prodigal son leaves, squanders his inheritance, breaks the law, is deserving of death, has a negative conception of his father, but is able to return. Well, see, there's a second son, a first son, firstborn. And in, in Jewish culture, that first son, if, if, a son if, if, if a father had two sons, and one son was rebellious, it was the other son's job to go and find them. It was, that was the, it was the other son's job. But in this story, the other son doesn't go and find him. In fact, he's just found waiting. He finds out that the younger son has come back and is really upset because 
a fatted calf is killed for him, and there's a celebration. And Jesus is doing this because the Pharisees and the scribes are that first son who didn't want to go after the sinners and the tax collectors because they weren't understanding that God has always seen us as his children. And so they want people to have to have this, this dialogue where we have to work our way back into the good graces of God. We have to start keeping the law of God before he'll start pouring out all the blessings of heaven for us. We have to start keeping the law. We have to, we have to be perfect before we can actually have that experience with Christ where you wake up and, and life is just different because you're communing with him. They want people to have that experience. And, and religious folk also, also, in a way, want to see that happen when new people come into the church. But Christianity isn't religion. It's the way of life based off of being found in Christ from the foundation of the world. And so this older son doesn't go and find his younger brother. But Christ is contrasting himself with the older son. See, Christ is seeking out the lost. The older brother didn't want to do that, but Christ is. And in fact, when the father divided the inheritance, he divided it amongst his two sons, meaning he no longer has an inheritance. So where does the fatted calf come from? It's from the first son. So when Jesus goes looking for the sinner, for the brother, when Jesus went and looked for us, He's using his riches, his mercy, his grace. In fact, he paid for it himself because he has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So as Christians, what does this mean? See, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our identity is not found in what we achieve. Our identity is not found in who we, who we uh, sponsor or who we lobby for or, or our job or even our relationship. Our identity is not found in, in our diet, if we're just the, the pinnacle of health. It, it's not found in our accomplishments of if we're a scholar and we've gotten full-on straight A's or, or if we're just able to do things that nobody else is able to do. That's not where our identity lies. Our identity lies in, in a place that the world has no understanding of. It's in Christ as one of his children. And so only in Christ is your identity received, not achieved. See, Christ just says, look, I, I, I welcome you back. Why? Because I chose you, because God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. So at no point do you ever stop being a child of God at no point. Now you might wonder, well, does that mean that, that everyone's going to be saved? No, because you can reject this gift. You can reject it. You can say 100%, yeah, no, I don't want that. And God's not going to hold you. He's not, he's not going to force you to be with him. That's not, that's not the God that is of the Bible. So yeah, you can, you can reject the gift. But what that means is, is that you, if you haven't rejected the gift, if you've just, just turned your heart ever so slightly to the receiving of the gift... There's grace in redemption. It's not off your record. It's not based off your performance. And when that love permeates your heart, you start to live differently. 
You start to not really worry about if somebody insults you or if somebody has a disagreement with you. You start to be able to take uh, constructive criticism because it's, it, you've been redeemed and you know that you're a child of God and that God loves you. The, God of the, hev- the, the, God, the creator God of all the universe loves you individually. In fact, he had a plan for you before he created the world. That God, that love, that just it overflows in your heart and you just start to live differently. That's grace. And we have access to that believing in faith that he still considers us a child of God. So I don't know what your experience has been. I don't know if you've, you've been white-knuckling your Christianity and you feel like you have to come and present yourself in a different way because you don't feel holy or blameless. But in Christ, you are holy and blameless. In Christ. So the key is, how do you get to be in Christ? How do you remain in Christ? That's the key. That's the question. How do we be in Christ? That's what we're talking about next Sabbath. So you're going to have to come back because there's no way. I mean, guys, it's going to be heady. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be honest. It's going to be complicated because we're going to need a lot of prayer. Because it's, I mean, it's a consistent theme. And people have been arguing over what this means and how to actually be in union with Christ on a daily basis. That that's why you go to any bookstore, any Christian bookstore, and there are all those books that are telling you about how to do it. But they're disagreeing with one another. So clearly, it's complicated. But I think the word is clear on how to be in Christ. In fact, there's a beautiful passage, and we're going to unpack it next Sabbath. So I don't know what your Christian experience has been like, but you're a child of God, which means that you can stand holy and blameless before him in love because in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 It says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. See, when you trust the good news, when you just believe it by faith, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the union. It's how you abide in Christ. And so we can, pro, we can boldly proclaim, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new because we are a child of God. We are a child of God right now. We don't have to earn it. We don't, we don't, we don't have to con- concoct some you know, really lofty New Year's resolution on how to be a, chi- a, a child of God. No, we are predestined to be a child of God before the foundation of the world. And so if you're interested in learning about how to remain in Christ, how to have access to that and, and walk in that every single day, I invite you to come back. I invite you to tune in uh, next Sabbath uh, because that's where we're going to be journeying through. So I guess this one is kind of like part A and next Sabbath is part B. Uh, so bring your Bibles because we're going to be turning to some, some passages, but, but God's going to knit it together. But let me pray for you. Father, I think of the story of, of Mordecai in the Old Testament and how he, he, was, he, he didn't care of obtaining some position like Haman. And it was because he understood something that, that we struggle to understand, and that is that he was accepted in you because of what Christ was doing, what Christ was going to do. Father, we've talked about something that's, that's kind of heady. It's kind of hard to grasp because it's this motif that often doesn't get spoken of. 
But Lord, the good news is that you just simply chose us to be in Christ so that when you sent Christ, he died our death and took our shame and our guilt. And we have access to come boldly to your throne to receive help in any time of need. We don't have to come up with some conversation, some well-written script of, Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm not worthy, but no, Lord, you say just come. In fact, you meet us when we are still a long way off, like the Father. And so, Father, we just pray that, that you would, would show us, maybe this week, how we are one of your children already and how you're going to show us how we can can walk in that newness of life every single day, not believing the falseness, the false lies that we are not good enough to be your children, but believing the truth. For you call what doesn't into existence as if it had. And so, Lord, we give you thanks in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.